0: We're eavesdropping
1: on a regular scene at this family's home in
0: Melbourne.
2: So
0: what you've just heard before was me talking to my parents in Mandarin. Basically, my dad found out about this video on YouTube with the headlines of the US has apologised, the origin of COVID was not from Wuhan, but some other city in America, um, which it's completely, I guess, fall along the line of conspiracy theory.
1: The parents speak mostly Mandarin and often source their news from YouTube. So it's up to their adult daughter to translate it and more often than not, to debunk it.
0: I guess in this space, it's fair to say it's sort of saturated with misinformation with Chinese language media, particularly so when they consume content, for example, on YouTube or WeChat. My parents sometimes will kind of, like, express this distrust or suspicion whenever I quote a foreign or in Australian media. They have this sense of well, it's the rest of the world against China. Having said that, they do apply some filter when it comes to Chinese media report as well. But it's actually hard, I guess, for people like them in such an old age to differentiate the different platforms and how to kind of like tell the difference between credible, independent journalism um, as opposed to, I guess, those type of sensationalised clickbait
1: headlines. They tell us they're by no means alone in this daily ritual. And if that intergenerational scene is playing out in homes around the world, it speaks of how there are at least two distinct audiences when it comes to consuming news from China. A Western audience used to getting it from traditional media outlets and a huge global Chinese community living outside the country that's hungry for news from home. Foreign journalists are being ejected from China. After almost five decades, the ABC checks out of China.
3: Bill Bertels' lonely departure ending a tense seven-day ordeal. The ABC's China correspondent for five years, Bertels is now back in Australia.
1: And the Chinese government is happily filling the news vacuum with its own propaganda. So how do journalists reach those audiences? with the truth. This is Journo, a podcast from the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. I'm Nick Bryant, and on Journo we unpack the biggest challenges and the biggest opportunities facing the media.
3: And so for five days we ended up living in this empty apartment in the Australian embassy in Beijing. You could see and smell and hear the city, but you just couldn't take part in it. The Australian Broadcasting Corporation's
1: China correspondent, Bill Bertels, knows only too well how quickly things can change on the ground for journalists.
3: That night, I was speaking to my partner, Inan, and I said, look, um, I think this is some sort of misunderstanding. I'm not clear what it's about, but I don't really think I'm in danger. And so hopefully the next morning we'll go to the embassy and we'll talk to them face-to-face and we'll work this out. In late August 2020,
1: Bill, his wife, and the Australian Financial Review journalist Michael Smith were told by the Australian authorities they had to leave China immediately. At first, he refused to believe it.
3: The problem is, uh, we went to the embassy the next day and the advice uh, was uh, even stronger. They doubled down and said, we really do want you out ASAP, and they weren't very clear on why. There was this real feeling of, uh, I can't believe it, my posting to China is over. It's over for these reasons which are unclear. By that evening, after midnight, seven national security police arrive at my doorstep, knock on my door. They don't arrest me, but they put an exit ban on me and tell me that they're investigating me uh, as part of an existing case. And that's when, of course, I realized these warnings, these safety warnings, they're not coming out of nowhere. Uh, this is pretty serious.
1: And Bill, adding an extra layer of complication and an extra layer of, of emotion as well, your, your partner, Enan, was was pregnant at the time.
3: Yeah, but the thing was, we hadn't told anyone because it was really early. It was, I think it was about eight weeks, nine weeks. We had a really initial scan and that's all we'd had. And I hadn't told my colleagues. I hadn't told my friends in Beijing. But we just, she'd told her parents, for example. So uh, we'd seen them, they live in Beijing. That was maybe the most stressful thing that was playing on my mind.
1: The timing was critical. China and Australia we're in the middle of a growing diplomatic stash. As China extends its war on
3: Australian wine imports, the Trade Minister says it's up to an increasingly aggressive Beijing to explain the growing list of goods now hit with trade barriers.
1: But it wasn't just trade in the crosshairs. Just a couple of months before Bertels had to leave, the Australian authorities had raided the homes of four Chinese journalists, it was part of an investigation into an alleged plot to influence an Aussie politician. The Chinese government then detained well regarded Chinese Australian news anchor Chung Lei. She
3: had been detained on August 14. No reason has been given for her detention. Chung Lei is a business journalist and anchor uh, for the English Channel.
1: The journalists in Beijing are a tight knit bunch, and Bill Berthels knew Chung Lei fairly well. Just as before he was told he had to get out, He'd actually secured the scoop about her detention.
3: On one hand, I was sort of trying to respect the sensitivity of those close to her about um, how to or when to report this news. On the other hand, I thought, you know, gee, this is a big scoop and you don't want to be beaten to it. And I'm pretty sure I'm the only one who knows this. And so when DFAT, the Australian Foreign Affairs uh, Department, rang my bosses and then my bosses ring me, my first instinct is shit, they're obviously ringing all the media to tell them about this, uh, this, this news and to kind of, you know, ruin my scoop. Uh, and so when instead it was a manager saying to me, oh, they've rung and uh, they want you out of China ASAP. And I sort of said, "Is this got something to do with uh, this story I'm about to do? And, I, it, and my manager said, what story? I sort of thought, what? I don't know what this is about, but I've got, I've got better things to do right now.
1: I mean, it's an extraordinary story. Um, you know, one minute you're just doing your job as normal. The next minute you're being basically shunted out of the country. I mean, what a what a dramatic turnaround.
3: And it, it escalated very quickly, Nick. This is the thing. It, it might seem from afar that uh, China is a pretty uh, dangerous place. But, of course, when you live there and work there, it all kind of seems quite normal day to day. You get used to the way things operate. So it was um, very difficult for me to believe even when Australia-China tensions were heating up so much. And of course, I was reporting on all of it. So I, I was following it all so closely. But I never actually thought it would get to that point where I get caught up in it myself.
1: Since the start of last year, at least 20 journalists have been expelled or forced to leave China. Most of them were American from The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post.
2: China said it would expel three Wall Street Journal staff members in Beijing in retaliation for the headline of opinion column that China viewed as racially discriminatory.
1: Their visas were canceled after the then US President Donald Trump put restrictions on Chinese journalists working in the United States.
3: Like the American journalists, we were not kicked out because of our journalism. Uh, We weren't kicked out because we did some specific story they didn't like. Rather, we were kicked out uh, in tit-for-tat diplomatic retaliation.
1: For years, one of the staples of Chinese coverage has been police putting their hands in front of cameras, jostling foreign reporters. But now we're seeing an alarming change. The public is getting in on that intimidation as well.
3: Yeah, and I think there's two things happening. And so um, one is that the Chinese government is um, increasingly whipping up a campaign of hostility towards the foreign media uh, to try and inculcate in public opinion the idea that anything the foreign media reports about China automatically cannot be trusted. So if you see stories saying that uh, government officials were lying or that they covered up the, uh, the early virus in Wuhan or anything like that. Your first instinct should be don't trust it. It's the foreign media. The foreign media is out to get China. Now, it very much correlates with what we saw from the Trump campaign in the United States, that the media is the enemy. You can't trust the mainstream media. The media is always lying. The media is out to get in the US, out to get Trump. In China out to get the Chinese government. I don't think it's 100% whipped up by the government. I think there's also this universal element, which we've seen, you see it in Australia a bit too now with sort of anti-lockdown protests. They always talk about the mainstream media. I think in China there's a bit of that too, as people become increasingly cynical of all media. There are a lot of well-educated cynics in China, of course, who think that the official state media is rubbish as well but um, because of the uh, censorship and because of the campaigns that the government runs in China, the vast majority of the hostility towards the media is funneled towards the Western media.
2: Even when I was there in 2012, 2013, there was this underlying current of fear and anxiety It was something, you know, I myself uh, was told on several occasions. Actually, once I was called into the foreign ministry and warned, you know, I was threatened and I was told, you've worked really hard to get this far. You've worked really hard to be a BBC correspondent in China. Wouldn't it be a pity if you were expelled? It was a warning to stay in my lane.
1: Dr. Louisa Lim spent a decade covering China for the BBC and the American public radio station NPR.
2: Air raid sirens howl to remember around 200 people who lost their lives in the most recent earthquake in Lushan. Then the country united to try to help the survivors. But five years on, the mood here has changed to one of bitter resentment and anger. So I've
1: now... Louisa now researches the media in China and has been watching closely as it shifts for the worse.
2: I think now it's the worst moment to be a foreign correspondent inside China uh, since the Cultural Revolution. There's always been the threat of expulsion, the threat has been ever-present, but now it's become much more real. It depends who you work for as well. It's very restrictive hard to travel, nobody wants to do interviews with foreign journalists. And now there's the added problem of a very sort of nationalistic feeling and reporters are actually getting sort of accosted and harassed on the streets because they work for Western media.
1: When did things change
2: and why did they change? Well, they're always changing. They're never static in China. One turning point, of course, was uh, after Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, this process of tightening began. COVID has made everything a lot worse. I think uh, COVID allowed the authorities to stop travel um, using COVID as an excuse. So it's really, really hard to get new foreign correspondents into China. And because a lot of uh, journalists have been uh, kicked out of China over the past couple of years, and it's hard to get any new visas approved. So we're seeing a shrinkage of the foreign correspondent pool. And is it the
1: type of coverage that China doesn't like? I mean, in the early part of this century, a lot of journalists were telling the emergent superpower story, you know, the growth of China. And now the coverage has become more critical. Has, Has that made the Chinese far more sensitive about how they are viewed internationally and, and the role of foreign correspondents in that?
2: A part of it is the type of coverage, but also, you know, a part of it is that <laughs> the kind of things that are happening within China that, that elicit this kind of coverage. I mean, you know, in the last few years, we've seen this growth of this re-education industrial complex in Xinjiang, where more than a million members of the Uyghur minority are being held in political re-indoctrination camps, Um, and the Communist Party calls these vocational training camps. But it's clear they're not, and, you know, access to them is very limited. And, you know, these are the stories that Beijing really doesn't want told, The narrative has changed, you're right. I mean, I remember when I first got there in 2003, so much of the reporting was economic and so much of the narrative, as you say, was was that rising superpower story. Reporting on human rights and politics, you almost had to fight a little bit to get those stories in the bulletin. But now these stories are so key in, in looking at the way China works today. I think part of it is the story. But I think the other thing is, under President Xi Jinping, Beijing is not willing to countenance other narratives apart from the state-run narrative. It isn't willing to let other people tell other stories of China. So the space for reporting has shrunk really, really dramatically.
1: The Chinese government's desire to control the news narrative is part of an increasingly aggressive strategy. And rooted, she says in national security?
2: In the past, China would try and suppress stories that were critical of it, but now we're seeing a much more aggressive approach where not only are they trying to suppress stories that are critical, but they're also trying to plant stories about uh, bad things that have happened in the West or how Western political systems are are less efficient than Chinese and all these kind of things. It is changing the information landscape and particularly outside English-speaking countries. In developing countries, I think that it can really have an impact.
1: You paint a very grim picture. I wonder, you know, this is probably the most important geopolitical story of our time, the rise of China. But how are international news organisations going to be able to cover it when their correspondents are barred from the country and barred from reporting on the ground?
2: Yeah, it's very difficult to cover China right now. But the other side of the coin is there is now this incredible cadre of China literate correspondents who speak Chinese fluently. Many of them have worked in China for many years and they've had to leave. And we are seeing them doing this work from outside China. You know, we're seeing a lot more work based on satellite images, based on publicly in available information, you know, scraping the Internet. Um, So I think people are finding ways of reporting on China. But the problem is what we're missing is that boots on the ground stuff. You know, what is happening out in the provinces? It's dangerous as well for China because uh, I think the foreign... Press has been useful for China's leaders as well. Almost like a pressure valve, so they can see what's happening in other places and they can see how that's being reflected overseas, and when that's gone, um, you know, I think we all become a little blinder.
1: For Bill Bertels not being in the country but still having to report on it is incredibly frustrating. It's a little bit like commentating on a sports event when you're not in the stadium. And the TV feed keeps on cutting out.
3: Yeah, I think it would be easier for other countries. And unfortunately, in China, although we still have staff over there, legally, according to Chinese law, the Chinese journalists, not only are they not allowed to be journalists, they're only allowed to be assistants, but also they're only allowed to do work when they're accompanied by a foreign journalist. So we've got a couple of stuff. We've got a cameraman, for example, in Beijing. He's not allowed to film anything. He's not allowed to go out and film general vision on the streets.
1: Someone in the Chinese diaspora in Australia who's seen the way the Chinese media functions from both sides is someone we're calling Yi Han. He wanted to protect his anonymity.
4: Okay, so I, I've spent the past decade in the mainstream Chinese media uh, in Beijing. So I started my career in the uh, news industry. Then I, <laughs> I dabbled in fashion and lifestyle as well before I finally uh, founded my own media company in Beijing.
1: Interestingly, although he's Uyghur Chinese, Yi Han says his ethnicity wasn't really an issue for most of that time in Beijing. But he left a couple of years ago because of the rising political tensions.
4: I actually studied here. I had my permanent residency and then in 2019, I decided to move back to Australia.
1: Now, Yehan, you've noticed the growing mistrust of the Western media. You, you think that began around 2008. Of course, that was the time of, of the Beijing Olympics. Just, just explain to us the origins of the, the mistrust of, of foreign news organizations.
4: Well, the mistrust has always been there. I mean, uh, the CCP has been portraying the Western media or any Western influence as adversary for years, and 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 then it culminated in two thousand eight due to a series of reports conducted by the Western media about the uh, human rights abuse of the Uyghurs, of Tibetans, and as well as some uh, Han Chinese people, and these series of reports or uh, had, had caused a huge backlash among Chinese people because the Olympics was seen back then as a very proud event for for Chinese uh, nationalistic sentiment. And so these reports were not received well in China, to say the least, and it gave birth to this uh, long-lasting movement that is called anti-CNN. In in this case, CNN is really an umbrella term for all Western media
1: with more than a million followers on chinese social media apps and a deep understanding of how chinese media operates yihan's got some pretty startling observations
4: i mean we talk about cancel culture in the west but it, it, it's something we've been experiencing in china for, for for years really i mean everything that that you're experiencing we we've, we've seen it years ago The phenomenon is getting worse and worse these days. Um, You can be canceled for any reasons. Interestingly, the Chinese internet, uh, in my observation, is one of the most, uh, can I say alt-right places in the world. I mean, anti-political correctness is, is a sentiment that is widely echoed on Chinese social media. And then also this cancel culture is rampant. So it's quite, quite a mystery there.
1: I mean, what you seem to be describing is a kind of Chinese internet toxic environment that's sort of similar in some ways to the kind of toxicity that we've seen in recent years in the United States.
4: Yes, I'd be more specific. It's more similar to 4chan or 8chan of the internet, I would say. So on one hand, the Chinese internet is in firm grasp of the Chinese government. But on the other hand, things like racism and Islamophobia, racism against the African diaspora in China, and Islamophobia is rampant on platforms like Weibo. I can honestly tell you, if if you just post something like, uh, don't discriminate against black people, you, you'll, you'll see some backlash.
1: But you won't see any state intervention to, to stop you posting that. They, they, they encourage that.
4: And not only there's no state intervention, I, I can give you an example. As you know, the news organizations are heavily regulated in China. So basically, you have to have this permit to engage in journalism. And these permits are reserved uh, for a handful of, of organizations like Xinhua, And things and 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 a lot of uh, major news outlets in China are actually operating illegally technically because they are not authorized to do so, uh, as well as the so-called journalists that includes myself, because we are not accredited by the state. There are very few people that are accredited by the state. And then in this context, uh, I think it's several years ago. There's this just distinctly, distinctively fake news organization which. It just publishes some crazy, unfounded Breitbart times ten sort of information, and they got accredited. They they got the permit. They are a legitimate news organization in China, which is which is insane.
1: So the foreign media's ability to report from China is rapidly diminishing, while nationalism inside China is growing. But how does the Chinese government control the message to its own people, including those who live outside the country? One way is overseeing one of the most popular and heavily censored social media platforms in the world, WeChat. And if Western governments want to push back against China's sophisticated media strategy, they're gonna have to try and curb WeChat's influence. And that won't be
5: easy. My name
1: is Bang Xiao. Um,
5: I'm a bilingual reporter for the ABC's Asia Pacific Newsroom.
1: ABC journalist Bang Xiao plays an important role in trying to reach the Chinese diaspora
5: when we talk about chinese australians um we have to be always mindful that um it's a really diverse uh, group of people here in australia we have chinese australians who are from china we have uh, you know chinese australians from malaysia vietnam indonesia or even you know um somewhere like singapore
1: the ABC China team posts Chinese and English content up on ABC News sites as well as Facebook, YouTube and Twitter, but not on WeChat.
5: We don't distribute any uh, content onto um, WeChat just because, um, you know, or we don't really want um, the content to be subject to um, China's censorship.
1: But getting fact-based news out to the Chinese community in Australia is fraught. Bung's reporting regularly sees him and his team attacked, accused of either being anti-Beijing or pro-Beijing.
5: I think um, the first challenge is actually to uh, tell the differences between facts and opinion, and that is something that is missing from you know um, China's education system. When you grow up in the country, you are not taught about what is fact, what is opinion.
3: Bung understands that better than anyone as well because um, one thing he sees is the social media trolling and the comments and that sort of stuff that they get for the Chinese service, for the ABC. It's very different to um, what... If we put something on, let's say, Twitter in English, some article I write about Australia, China or whatever, the comments, you get you know, people who are uh, supportive and people who are critical. But once he does a story in Chinese, the comments overwhelmingly are critical, overwhelmingly against the ABC. So, um, you know, and these are people, many of them in Australia.
1: Since Bill Berthel's return to Australia, he's been in regular contact with Bung. And Bung's team is now increasingly involved in the ABC's broader China coverage, using their contacts to find interviews on mainland China and offering nuanced editorial advice.
3: The Chinese language stuff they do is really important because Um, One of the big, big, big problems with reaching the Chinese diaspora in any country, uh, particularly uh, first-generation migrants, is that because WeChat has cannibalized the ecosystem within mainland China, because alternatives such as Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, WhatsApp, because they're all blocked by the government, everyone's getting their news now through WeChat. They're all getting it through these sort of microblogs, but also state media outlets, everyone's got WeChat accounts and everything on WeChat goes through the funnel of Communist Party censorship. So what means is in Australia, the Chinese diaspora, particularly first-generation migrants, many of them are still largely relying on this app to get local news about what's happening in Australia from Chinese Australian media companies, which are very small, but they're based here. The problem, of course, is even that local news about Australia is all going through the filter of Chinese government censorship. So, for example, it's fine to mock Morrison, it's fine to mock the Australian side, but you never get that mocking or that critical coverage of the Chinese side. So, for ABC and SBS, which is another publicly funded uh, broadcaster, it's a huge challenge for them to set up Chinese language news uh, platforms to uh, cater to the Chinese diaspora, because they're essentially locked out of WeChat. You cannot run a real news service in Chinese on WeChat because of the censorship. So yes, they target people through Facebook and uh, Twitter and and whatever else, YouTube. Um, But there's still this huge chunk, particularly of first-generation migrants who are primarily reliant on WeChat.
1: Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has been stung by WeChat's censors.
3: The big example is earlier this year, um, the Chinese government has this sort of lowly spokesman who's a bit of an attention seeker named Zhao Li Jian, and um, he posted this artwork. Which was very provocative of an Australian soldier uh, sort of about to slit the throat of an Afghan child. And he did it, obviously, to uh, cause a stir.
2: Outrage Australians have pointed out that China, a one-party authoritarian state, has been accused of systemic... So
3: Morrison uses his WeChat account, public account, to post his reply in Chinese. Now, he's aiming at the Australian-Chinese community, to say this is, you know, my view. The Chinese government
1: should be totally ashamed
3: of this post. This is how the Australian side sees this dispute. It diminishes them in the world's eyes. And WeChat censored it. I want to make a couple of points about this. WeChat said, oh, this is in violation of our policies and took it down. Now, it's an absolute mugs game engagement on WeChat. I, I really wish Australian politicians would not do it. I wish they had nothing to do with this app because it is rigged. It is censored by an authoritarian political party overseas from the outset. Yet, because there is such a large Chinese diaspora, because they feel there's obviously a significant proportion of people who uh, primarily speak Chinese, and, and they vote, of course, at election time, you do have most Australian politicians engaging on WeChat. Because
1: to engage on WeChat is to legitimise and validate WeChat?
3: Well, I don't think that the politicians uh, are trying to do that. They're just trying to grab votes from anybody they can. but. Yeah, you're right in the sense that if someone like Scott Morrison actively uses WeChat, uh, he's basically signalling to the Chinese diaspora in Australia that he doesn't have a problem with its censorship. He's willing to use it. But uh, as he found out the hard way earlier this year, the censorship is, um, is is a big, big problem. And at election time, of course, in the United States, people were so obsessed with Russian meddling. Um, going forward, every three years when there's a federal election in some of those seats which are marginally held and which take in large chinese diasporas uh, if 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 you have this potential you have this potential for the chinese government if it's so wished to interfere in the way it senses and guides the content Uh, from those local Australian news outlets, which are on the WeChat platforms. Some people think this is just kind of, you know, ah, this is not a big problem, this is never going to happen. But I think long-term, this has to be something that the Australian side is very, very aware of.
1: I wonder, Yihan, when it comes to news organisations like the ABC, who uh, set up Chinese teams, deliberately targeting news at the Chinese diaspora. I mean, how do they make headway against a a behemoth like WeChat?
4: That's a very good question and unfortunately there there might not be a very very simplistic and clear answer to it because other than the influence of uh, censorship, there's also this uh, cultural inertia because, well, people are drawn to stuff that they're culturally familiar with. They socialize with Chinese people who share the same language on WeChat and and so it's just more convenient for them to consume news on it.
1: And WeChat becomes a a sort of classic echo chamber as, as a result?
4: Yes, I would say so. And, and the more curious case is that not only WeChat, but some more uh, emerging social media platforms like Little Red Book.
1: Which is the Chinese equivalent of Instagram, yeah.
4: Yes, more or less. I, I noticed that a lot of my Chinese friends in here, they would, they would still consume the content on it. I mean, what you seem to be saying, Yihan, is that the
1: international media here is fighting a losing battle when it comes to trying to report on China for local Chinese communities?
4: It is, I mean, it, well, it, it's not a fair battle because there's the censorship and self-censorship. And then people are just drawn to cultural uh, products that they're more familiar with. So, I mean, a, a, a small division of ABC, if they are to compete with the behemoth of Chinese entertainment industry, it's uh, yes, I would say it's a losing battle.
1: The Beijing beat has almost always been covered by journalists with a love and fascination for China. Experts, in most cases, often fluent in Mandarin, who have gone there in good faith, determined to explain the country to the rest of the world, and to cover it in its complicated entirety. So when they're kicked out, they are being prevented from doing their jobs precisely because they're doing their jobs. A Chinese catch-22. What also struck me after talking to Yi Han was that when it comes to the consumption of news from China, journalists are increasingly being bypassed and sidelined. That's part of a global trend that was evident too during the Trump years and also during the Obama years, the first presidency to rely heavily on social media and to see platforms such as Facebook and Twitter as a way of speaking directly to the public. The problem is, of course, that facts are losing out to falsehoods News organizations are no longer the gatekeepers of news. In fact, there aren't even any gates. Governments know that and the consumers of news have been quick to grasp that too. Maybe as journalists, we've been slow to accept what for us is an unsettling new reality. Journo is produced by Deadset Studios for the Judith Nielsen Institute, which supports quality journalism and storytelling around the world. You can find out more about the Institute's programmes and events at jninstitute.org. And make sure you follow Journo in your podcasting app, so you're alerted each time we release a new episode. Our executive producer is Rachel Fountain. Our producers are Margie Smithhurst and Nicole Kirby, with sound design by John Chia. Our managing editor is Kelly Reardon, and the commissioning editor for JNI is Andrea Ho. I'm Nick Bryan, and next on Journo. Is your phone spying on you? And how can you report if the very tool you rely on is being watched?
4: There is no such thing as an encrypted app. There's no such thing as, like, keeping something private, it is all accessible. That means whoever's on the other side of of Pegasus can listen to your phone conversations, look at all your pictures, track where you are. The more you think about Pegasus, if you're a person who
2: could be vulnerable to this, it just makes you not want to have your phone anywhere near you.